Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Moppin Engineering today's program. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Greg Jans, his latest uh, very small book, Social Media and Depression. That's coming up. Later this hour, it's published by Aspire, and we'll also talk with Luke Cirillo. He is the CEO of First Image. We're going to talk about the status of pregnancy resource centers in the Portland metro area, what happens now post-Roe, and perhaps offer uh, some insight. What does a pregnancy resource center do? I recently read a post on Facebook that expressed a clear misunderstanding, so we'll try to clear that up in just a Just a few moments. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. First, some of the day's headlines in a red flag failure. The Highland Park shooting suspect passed gun background checks despite a clear and present danger report that was present. Vice President Kamala Harris goes viral with word salad during a Highland Park visit. The vice president went viral on Tuesday for comments she made in Highland Park, Illinois, following the horrific Independence Day parade massacre. Just one day after the mass shooting that resulted in seven killed and over 30 injured, the vice president visited the northern suburb in Chicago to uh, meet with local law enforcement. She made brief remarks in the morning uh, to the morning town. Uh, We've got to take this stuff seriously, as seriously as you are, because you have been forced to take this seriously, end quote. Uh, She said to the press, to the press and the Highland Park residents. Well, in a light foot in mouth, a Democrat mayor made a um, hypocritical plea uh, days after cursing out the Supreme Court justice. Uh, The Democratic Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, is attempting to strike a more civil tone, which is the right approach. Just days after cursing out Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas speaking at an event on Tuesday, she decried attacks on police officers in her city, suggesting it's a sign of people losing respect for the institutions of our democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic. But toxicity in our public discourse is a thing that I think we should all be concerned about. Right. She went on to add. Russian President um, Putin's posturing. Experts say Putin's NATO comments is merely an effort to reframe the Ukraine invasion failures. And claiming nefarious reasons, House Republicans quiz the Department of Justice on the ousting of the Trump-era immigration judges. Suggesting warning signs, a Chinese immigrant who witnessed Mao Zedong's cultural revolution is warning about the indoctrination of children in K-12 through schools in the neo-Marxist ideology, such as critical race theory, and the New York Times 1619 Project. In an interview with Fox News Digital, Lily Tang Williams, who is currently running as a Republican candidate for Congress in New Hampshire's 2nd District, discussed the lessons she learned as a witness to communist brutality and shared a warning to Americans on the importance of fighting for liberty. Mao believed that young people's mind is a blank piece of paper. You can draw the most beautiful pictures or whatever he wants to draw or whatever he wants them to believe. Those are the warning signs. In a supposed act of patriotism, a July 4th column by the L.A. Times editorial board advocates for stopping the Supreme Court. Now, defining stopping is somewhat troublesome. Bashing America, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy tells CNN the July 4th Uh, Bashing is justified after the Supreme Court's declared a war on women. Viewership woes. MSNBC's Joy Reid has the smallest uh, quarterly audience since the readout launched her program. Private school progress. Arizona school choice law sets a new standard for the nation. The Arizona legislature recently passed the most expansive school choice law in the nation, 
opening our Empowerment Scholarship account eligibility to all school-age children without restriction. Hey, pal, it's Dad. Well, the White House on Tuesday dodged questions about a leaked voicemail President Biden purportedly left for his son, Hunter Biden, about his overseas business dealings, maintaining that any materials that allegedly originated from his son's now infamous laptop would not be discussed. President Biden has repeatedly denied discussing Hunter's business ventures with him. His son is currently under federal investigation for his tax affairs, predicted uh, by uh, predicated rather by suspicious foreign transactions. Norwegian energy workers are striking for more money, deepening Europe's energy crisis. CNN reports that Europe's energy woes escalated Tuesday as Norwegian oil and gas workers went on strike. Shutting three fields in the Northern Sea and causing a spike in natural gas prices, Norway's state-owned energy company uh, said it had shut the fields after some of its employees went on strike over a pay dispute. The three fields produce the equivalent of 89,000 barrels of oil a day, more than 30 percent of which is natural gas. Um, Norway has uh, was the second largest source of natural gas to Europe last year after only Russia. According to Eurostat data, the disruption comes at a critical moment for the region. On Wednesday, Norwegian workers are due to strike again, which will result in the shutdown of three additional fields. Those fields produce the equivalent of some 330,000 barrels of oil a day, of which almost 80 percent is natural gas. Morningstar reports that Norway's labor ministry said it was watching the process closely, warning that it will intervene to stop the strike in exceptional circumstances. Inflation is running rampant across Europe, with a number of countries recording the highest levels for decades, blaming a sharp rise in energy prices. Well, Germany is working to bail out energy companies before winter. The Wall Street Journal reports that Germany paved the way Tuesday for injecting billions of taxpayer money into embattled energy suppliers as the country braces for a stop to Russian natural gas imports, a scenario many economists think would trigger a severe recession. Berlin said it was rewriting legislation going back to the 1970s oil shock, enabling the government to inject capital into energy companies that are struggling with rocketing gas prices and dwindling Russia supplies to ensure they keep delivering uh, power and heat to com- to companies and to households. The move is the latest in a battery of emergency measures to help manage the an energy crisis in Europe's largest economy this winter as the economic war unleashed by Moscow's invasion of Ukraine accelerates. Bloomberg weighs in saying Unipar SE, whose business depends on cheap Russian gas, is set to be the first to receive government support. Officials said on Monday the company needed as much as 9 billion, billion euros which is about 9.3 billion U.S. dollars, about twice its market value. We will do everything to keep up the basic supply in coming winter and keep the energy markets running as long as possible, despite rising prices and increasing risks. The economy minister, Robert Habeck, said the government is acting to sharpen its tools. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later this hour, a conversation with uh, Dr. Greg Jans, social media and depression. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Before we return to the news, I want to let you know that the book of the month, Don't Take the Bait to Escalate. Now through the end of the month, this book will be featured right here on KPDQ. You can well, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with this. This doesn't this note doesn't make sense to me, Sam. Filled with guidance to help you emerge from conflicts with a stronger relationship with the person that you uh, find your as your adversary, whether on the job, your neighbor, marriage, or 
in the parking lot. When it comes to your current or next conflict, remember that resolution starts with de-escalation, and this book will show you how. You can buy or enter to win a copy. Okay, there we go. Don't take the bait to escalate at kpdq.com. They can explain everything (laughs) there because my little note here is not very, very clear. Anyway, that's the book of the month, and you could win or purchase a copy. The euro has fallen to a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar. It fell to its lowest level in two decades on Tuesday as fears of a recession in the the eurozone ramped up, with gas prices soaring and the Ukraine war soaring, or rather showing no signs of abating. The euro shed around 1.3% for the session to hit uh, by mid-afternoon in Europe, having uh, earlier been as low as 1.028%. Eurozone inflation hit to 8.6% in June, prompting the European Central Bank to give markets advance notice of its intention to hike interest rates for the first time in 11 years at its July meeting. Meanwhile, the New York Times says as the Eurozone's economic outlook darkens, investors are concerned that the ECB has moved too late and may not have time to raise rates for very long before a weaker economy forces it to change course. There are growing predictions that the Eurozone economy could slip into recession, especially if uh, energy supplies continue to be disrupted. The Federal Reserve is expected to remain more aggressive in raising rates which would make holding assets dominated in uh, dollars more attractive than um, ones in euros of, on top of the worries about the prospects of the eurozone economy. Well, President Biden has made leasing permits more difficult to obtain, yet urges gas companies to cut prices. Fox Business reports the Department of the Interior published a proposed five-year offshore leasing program Friday that opened the door to a complete ban on offshore leasing through 2028. The plan, which would allow a maximum of 11 total offshore lease sales in the time span, also laid waste to a Trump-era version of the same program that proposed 47 lease sales over five years. Since day one, this administration has put climate activism over energy independence and energy security. Uh, Bernhardt uh, said he was the DOI's deputy secretary between 2017 and 2018 and led the agency between 2019 and 2021 during the previous administration. National average price of gas in the United States is currently $4.80, according to AAA, with a national average temporarily surpassing $5 per gallon last month. Fuel costs have risen since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, yet the administration has pursued policies such as nixing expansion of the Keystone XL pipeline last year and delaying new drilling permits. Meanwhile, the president has repeatedly exhorted oil companies to cut into their own prices and increase production. Seventy percent of 10 year olds are struggling with literacy globally. According to the World Bank, as a result of the worst shock to education and learning in recorded history, learning uh, poverty has increased by a third in low- and middle-income countries, with an estimated 70% of 10-year-olds unable to understand a simple written text. This rate was 57% before the pandemic, but now uh, the learning crisis has deepened. This generation of students now risks losing $21 trillion in potential lifetime earnings in present value, or the equivalent of 17% of today's global GDP, up from the $17 trillion estimated in 2021. Well, NATO has signed accession protocols for Sweden and Finland. NATO's 30 ambassadors on Tuesday signed accession protocols for the two countries to join the transatlantic military alliance. It was the next step in the process of NATO's most significant expansion since the mid-90s and a direct response by the alliance to Russia's war in Ukraine. 
or war on Ukraine is more accurate. The protocols still have to be ratified by the legislature of each uh, allied government before the two Nordic countries become official members. But the group's secretary general called it truly an historic moment for Finland, for Sweden and for NATO. Reuters reports that after, reports rather that after Turkey lifted its veto on Finland and Swinland, Sweden, rather at the NATO summit in Madrid, 30 NATO allies signed an accession protocol for the Nordic countries to join the nuclear armed alliance once parliaments ratify that decision. James Carafano points out that the two countries signing the NATO ascension protocol allows the Finland and Sweden to join NATO meetings, which expand their access to intelligence, but does not include a mutual defense clause just yet. That kicks in after members states ratify membership. So they are essentially functioning, have access to information, but don't yet have the um, uh, the mutual defense. The Washington State School Board director plans to teach children as young as nine about sex at her wink wink sex shop. Washington State School Board director who won who owns rather a sex shop is making headlines after announcing she's going to teach sex education classes for children as young as nine on topics such as um, anatomy for pleasure and safer sex practices for all kinds of sexual activities. Nine years old. Well, the classes for nine to 12 year olds is an introduction to topics related to relationships, puberty, body and sexuality. We focus on what makes healthy versus unhealthy friendships and romantic relationships, the science of how puberty works, consent and personal boundaries defining sex, and discussing why uh, people may or may not choose to engage in activities. The uh, owner of the sex shops told the, uh, speaking to the school board director for Bellingham School District, uh, speaking in a radio interview. The Western Journal weighs in, saying in March, Mason's uh, shop offered queer youth open mic night for children between the ages of 0 and 18, calling it a stage for young queer voices in our community. However, in the schools is a different story, where these children are under authority and are coerced to be there. President Biden shipped 5 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve overseas as gas prices spike. More than 5 million barrels of oil that were a part of an historic U.S. emergency oil reserve release uh, aimed at lowering domestic fuel prices were exported to Europe and Asia last month, as in China, according to data and sources, even as U.S. gasoline and diesel prices touched record highs. About 1 million barrels per day is being released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve through October. The flow is draining the SPR, which last month fell to the lowest since lowest level since 1986. U.S. crude futures are above um, $105 per barrel in gasoline and diesel prices, above $5 a gallon in one-fifth of the nation. U.S. officials have said oil prices could be higher if the SPR had not been tapped. Katie Pavlich suggests that while Biden has been selling off America's reserve oil, he's been publicly berating oil companies and private gas station owners. The White House has also classified oil producers as unpatriotic. Well, the administration is suing Arizona for requiring proof of citizenship to vote in federal elections. The Biden administration on Tuesday sued the state, saying the state violates federal law by requiring proof of citizenship to vote for president. It's the latest challenge to Republican-backed changes to state voting procedures. The Justice Department said Arizona's newly enacted requirement that residents provide documentary proof of citizenship would keep eligible voters from participating in certain federal elections. 
The state law set to take effect in January turns the clock back by imposing unlawful and unnecessary requirements that would block eligible voters from registration rolls. That's a quote from Kristen Clark, head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. She called Arizona's bill, House Bill 2492, which also requires proof of citizenship to vote by mail in any federal election, a textbook violation of the National Voter Registration Act. A provision requiring election officials to reject registration forms based on mistakes they, that aren't relevant to a voter's eligibility also violates the Civil Rights Act, the Justice Department said. Arizona Republicans passed the bill in, um, uh, in a party-line vote, and Governor Doug Ducey signed it on March the 30th, calling it a balanced approach that honors Arizona's history of making voting access without sacrifices sacrificing security in our elections. ABC weighs in saying Arizona requires voters to prove they are a U.S. citizen when they register to vote. The only state to do so by providing a government issued identification like a driver's license, tribal ID or passport. The 2013 Supreme Court ruling allowed the requirement for state elections, but Arizona cannot require proof of citizenship for federal elections like president. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we're going to uh, start a conversation with Dr. Greg Jans. He is the author of Social Media and Depression. That's up next right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's growing research that shows we as a society have a social media dilemma. Social media use has a dark side, including elevated risk of depression and anxiety. But avoiding negative outcomes is not the only reason to educate ourselves about the pitfalls and learn to avoid them. Preserving the benefits of responsible social media engagement is also a payoff worth pursuing. So how do we do all of that? Well, my next guest has written a book on the subject that will help us, social media and depression. Spending too much time interacting with our electronic devices can lead to negative mental health consequences that are similar to other forms of addictions. And so managing all of that is what we'll be talking about for the next couple of segments. Dr. Gregory Jantz is the founder of the Center, a place of hope in Edmonds, Washington. He was voted a top uh, 10 facility for depression treatment in the United States. Dr. Jantz pioneered whole person care in the 1980s and is a world-renowned expert on depression, anxiety, eating disorders, technology addiction, and abuse. Dr. Jantz is a best-selling author of 40 books and has appeared on CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox, and CNN. And we're just delighted to have him with us today to talk about this very handy resource, social media and depression. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jans. Oh, good to be with you today. And social media is a problem. It is a problem. It's a wonderful tool, but it can also have a side that, that we don't fully understand. How do we assess our own vulnerabilities to social media? Um, how do we know if we have a problem and how do we assess, um, you know, our relationship to it, healthy or unhealthy? Yes. And let me just qualify by saying I am, I'm on social media, but if we don't have boundaries with time and what we are viewing and engaging with, it's an easy setup. We know that people who spend more time uh, in social media who already are struggling with maybe some depression tendencies, we know that what happens is they will actually increase in their depression symptoms. So uh, we need to look at the social media world and, and why are we so deep into it? Are we using it as our definitive source of information? And, you know, we also need to look generationally 
the involvement, who's our age groups that are engaged, and what does this do um, even to the developing brain? So those are some of the important questions we have to ask. Now, you share in the book some of the dangers posed by excessive or imbalanced use of social media. What are some of these excessive uses or uh, imbalanced use that can be harmful? Well, one of the things that we're seeing is uh, people are spending more time, if you will, in social media than in real relationships. They would rather isolate and engage in social media versus see a person in person. Uh, if you've ever had a, a break or a lunch or a coffee with somebody and they're on, I call it a device, they're <laughs> on their device more than, you know, than they're talking to you, that's probably a problem mm-hmm. because this can devalue relationships. And as we devalue the relationship because it's showing that something else has your attention. And so then we develop something that I call partial attention. You're only partially engaged with that person, which has an effect on really devaluing the importance of that relationship. What role did the pandemic and the isolation that it afforded, what role did that play on our growing dependence on social media in place of being able to come together and maybe forgetting how to, how to do that? Yes. Well, one of the things that we know is that during the intensity of the pandemic, during this time, the engagement, the isolation was high, so the engagement into online activities uh, really increased. And let me just add, some of the online activities that increased uh, were not healthy or not good. Uh, Pornography use went up. Uh, We know that um, people uh, began to use social media where there was division and there was... um, you know, kind of almost an online hatred and anger. And so it hasn't always been good. And it's important to say, okay, what did this do to me? Um, if you already are struggling a little bit, maybe with um, self-esteem and you're going, and, and then you compare yourself when you're online. It's a, it's a way of comparing. And uh, we use it to judge what is reality, which is really not a good thing to do. And so the pandemic just escalated all the issues. Yeah. How can social media cause depression? Well, because we're comparing, because we go online and we're not engaged in real relationships. And one of the things that we know is the more that you're um, away from real relationships, the really what's happening online is there's a lowering of our self-esteem. It's the most fascinating thing to watch. Somebody who's just spent six hours online in social media um, tends to be irritable. They tend to be uh, not feeling good about themselves. You start to see more isolation. Uh, we know that there are some things online. Uh, we see this um, constantly that uh, you know, there's too much um, sexual content, sexualization. Um, there's things that people bump into, not necessarily intentionally, but they begin and become engaged. So we've got to talk about this with our kids and really do a, a really a check-in with our own selves. How well are we doing? In your book, Social Media and Depression, do you see signs, and in your practice, I should say, do you see signs of addictions or narcissism from excessive social media use? Yes. Excessive social media use. And, you know, everybody, like any other addiction, um, 
you misjudge how much time you've spent online. And what that looks like is you ask a, let's say you ask a person who's struggling with alcohol, well, how much did you have to drink? And they go, well, I just had one beer. What? And, and the reality is they just had six. Okay, that's the way social media, how long were you online? Oh, just just maybe a half hour, and it was really six hours. Mm-hmm. So is that fairly common, that people underestimate the impact, the time spent on social media? Yes. The amount of time spent in social media can um, rob us of relationships. It takes away emotional closeness from another person. And yet the delusion of social media is we begin to believe that we have lots of friends, right? And we're looking for it as a place of uh, of seeking approval. Yeah, yeah. Now, does use of social media, or rather misuse of social media, impact teens and uh, young people differently than it does adults? Is there a greater um, danger? You know, I think with teens, there's the shaping of self, self-identity. Uh, there is, uh, we have a generation where there's a lot of apathy. We have a generation where there's a lot of just um, uh, not hope for the future. And so we're seeing uh, kids engage in, in really an alternative, at times, times, an alternative reality. You know, everything is virtual. Mm-hmm. If we look at during the pandemic, virtual learning failed. We had the highest academic failure on record. And so we can expect that that virtual world will have a similar impact on the real life of uh, individuals who immerse themselves in it, especially young people. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So, and so this is not, again, I'm going to say I'm not against the use of social media. Um, I participate, but we really have to look at this and go have strong boundaries. How much time are being spent and what are we spending our time on? Can we self-regulate? What happens is when it really becomes an addiction, and there is a such thing as a digital addiction, we see it here at the center, a place of hope. Uh, people coming in, and we find uh, that they'll have symptoms like any other addiction. So digital addiction is real. Now, when you say similar uh, symptoms of other kinds of addictions, can you give an example? Because it's hard to imagine how that kind of addiction would would be similar to the kinds of substance abuse, for example, that one might be addicted to. Yes. Uh, when somebody comes to, now we're a facility where people come and stay. When somebody uh, comes to us, uh, for the first three days, um, they're not on any kind of screens. They check their cell phones and their tablets and everything. They check them in for the initial three days. Many individuals will start to have what I'll call withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. It, their heart rate goes up, they get sweaty palms, they get headaches, and it's a symptom of, of addiction. Isn't that interesting? And they'll say, hey, I, I, I've got to have my phone back. I forgot to tell somebody something, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. Well, that is fascinating to consider that uh, that link. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break again. Talking with Dr. Greg Jantz, his latest uh, book is Social Media and Depression. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Gregory Van, uh, Jans. He is the author of Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. And the good news is you can be both in the digital age. Um, one of the things that we um, are very cons- uh, concerned about is the, the fact that um, overuse or misuse of social media, as you put it, digital media, uh, can be a mood-altering drug. It can be addictive. It can um, contribute to or even cause depression. Is that a fair characterization of the misuse of social media that can, on the other hand, uh, be very beneficial if we know how to manage it well? Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, I don't know that we could always say it causes depression, but if you're on the edge and you've struggled, it will increase your depression. And I haven't mentioned anxiety yet, but anxiety levels tend to increase the more you're involved in social media. Well, why is that? Well, we're comparing, there's things that are being said, um, we have an emotional reaction to a lot of the things. There are There is certainly is some things in social media that are very inappropriate uh, in many different ways, and we react to those. And what we tend to do is we spend more time in social media than what we ever realized, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and time passes and passes, and at the expense of other relationships. Now, what are what are some of the different types of cyberbullying? You've talked a lot about this uh, tendency. Uh, to compare ourselves with the images that aren't aren't always uh, an accurate image of someone else's life, but um, cyberbullying is another concern. Can you talk a little bit about that and the different types that are out there? Yes, there's cyberbullying where we, people will uh, obviously make online threats, um, and cyberbullying that people will say and do things online or in social media that they wouldn't do in person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as though you're, you're, you're bolder and you can take on a different personality engaged when you're engaged in social media. Uh, so people will say and do things that in real life they wouldn't normally do. Well, in addition to pointing out the, the challenges of managing social media well, you also offer strategies for healthy use of social media. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think most of us want to be healthy and happy in the digital age, but don't necessarily know how to navigate that for ourselves or how to encourage young people to use it in a healthy way. So what are some of the strategies for healthy use of this medium? Well, I think, what am I subscribing to? What am I engaged with? How am I using social media? Is it, for some, it's their primary source of news and information. Is that the best way? Um, And am I able, the question to ask, am I able to um, really truthfully uh, modulate my time? So can I put on a timer and after 15 minutes really get off of social media or do I stay on? Am I walking around the house with my phone and I have family members talking to me and I'm not engaging with them or I'm not hearing what they're saying? So how much time does it really take? And as you look at that, you go, is this drawing me closer to my important relationships or is this an intimacy barrier? Mm. You also offer in the book Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age, ways to assess um, one's vulnerabilities to social media use. I mean, we're all different. Some of us can handle more than others. I think there's some healthy boundaries that should apply to all of us. But how can we assess our own vulnerabilities? Well, one of the things is 
take a day of the week, maybe it's Sunday, and just do a fast, uh, detox, if you will, and see how well you do. And what social media do I find myself? It can be very tempting, uh, very tempting. Um, and so part of the assessment is where am I spending my time? What am I looking for? What am I hoping to see? So social media teases you. And do I have the personal discipline? Am I willing to be accountable? accountable. So those are a few of the things that we want to look at. You suggest uh, your readers choose best practices to minimize risks. What are some of those best practices? Well, I mentioned one. One is to be accountable. Yes. The other is set a, even set a timer. And can I, do I stop after a certain period of time? Um, other is how am I using it? Uh, am I using this uh, is is it really beneficial? Am I am I learning, or is it just what I call doom scrolling? I'm engaged. I'm just doom scrolling, and everything I'm reading is negative. Everything I'm reading is causing me to have more anxiety, and so this is really really important that you look at. What am am I engaging in? Just negative information, and it's so easy, uh, so easy to do, especially. Uh, today, when the uh, the internet does embolden people to behave in ways they wouldn't in face to face interaction, what do you say to parents who are concerned that their uh, sons or daughters or young people um, are immersed in social media, have lost the capacity to engage in um, social interaction as many young people did, having been isolated for a period of time? How do you help to transition someone else, particularly a younger person? Uh, that you recognize is in a in an unhealthy state. Well, I think one of the things is we always want to focus on loving and caring for the person, and and not coming. You know, people who feel harshly judged, people who feel, um, you know, uh, that you are trying to control them, they're going to rebel. And so, one of the things is, first of all, we need to set a personal good example mm-hmm. of this. And, you know, what are we modeling to our family? Let's just start there. <laughs> you know, am I really, you know, in the evenings or in the home, am I always on my device or am I truly engaging in another person um, relationship? We, For example, one of the rules that we have is you don't pull out your phone during uh, dinner time or when you're around the table, you're fully present. Uh, so just having simple, uh, I call them boundaries, it helps really um, navigate this in the home front. What time, if you have kids, are your devices, um, you know, on on the chargers, awake, not in their bedrooms, etc. Yeah. Is there an age at which you suggest um, a young person be permitted to engage in social media? And I'm not talking about using computers for schoolwork or you know, the necessary interaction that's required through education, for example. But is there a point at which it's unhealthy for a a very young person to be involved in social media? You know, the age is is funny on this, but I get really concerned when I see uh, that we're using social media, we're using devices to babysit kids who are five and six years old, you know, and I... You know, I, I usually say we want to wait as long as possible, and then there needs to be some real teaching around this. Though this is new, I get it, but um, and kids learn things quickly, and, you know, they usually, if something happens in the news, they know about it um, quickly. So this is important that we 
talk about um, good good online or good digital hygiene. Digital hygiene. <laughs> I like that. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is a very useful, um, useful book, Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. Um, you, along with uh, Keith Wall, have provided a resource. I think a lot of parents and, for that matter, adults will find handy. Is this a problem that you're seeing increase over time or are you optimistic that people are recognizing, especially coming out of the pandemic, uh, that we really need to reassess our relationship with, uh, with the digital world? I think we've got to ongoingly keep an eye on this. Absolutely. So one of the things that's so important is um, to understand that we, if things will change over the time, there's always something new. There's always a new app. Things change. But have a sense uh, of always keeping this as an engaged conversation. Yeah, yeah. Once again, the book is titled Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. It's published by Aspire. Thank you so much for this and so many of the other resources that you have made available to help us live a healthy and happy life, whatever our concern might be. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. You, you too. Bet. Bye-bye. Again, Social Media and Depression, How to have a, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, produced by James Blend, engineered by Sam Maupin. Coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk with the CEO of First Image, Luke Cirillo. We're going to talk about the status of the pregnancy resource centers across the Portland metro area and what next, given this very challenging season we find ourselves in. Luke will join me in the next couple of segments. Well, the Biden administration is suing Arizona for requiring proof of citizenship to vote in federal elections. And a Snapchat Snap Map update reveals users' exact location, including street address. Well, according to Fox Business, a new Snapchat update, you try saying that fast three times, allows users to access someone's precise location with the platform's Snap Map feature if location sharing is uh, enabled, even providing a person with a street and house number. Well, the Snap Map feature not only gives away a user's physical address, but it also allows people to view how long of a drive uh, they are from someone else's location. For parents and others who may be concerned about accidentally granting strangers access to their location, Snapchat allows users to disable uh, one's whereabouts by selecting ghost mode in the app. Individuals can also turn off the precise location option in their phone settings. Snap Maps gives users the ability to share their live locations with their friends. The feature also shows images and videos posted by people uh, from around the world, which anyone can view by clicking on the map. So for safety's sake, you might want to check that out if you're... um On the app, nearly half a million illegal um, migrants have melted into the country so far this year. Record numbers uh, continue to pour into the U.S. according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which runs calculations using a range of border surveillance technologies, including aerial drone footage. Over 476,000 have evaded apprehension in the current fiscal year. That's nearly 80,000 more than fiscal year 2021. 
the total of 389,000. Well, the average daily total of uh, a migrant uh, gotaway sits at 1,700. Meanwhile, more than 7,000 are arrested by Border Patrol every single day at the current pace. This year's numbers of gotaways will more than double last year's total. Following the U.S. Supreme Court ruling freeing Joe Biden to end Donald Trump's remain in Mexico policy, the situation at the uh, uh, open southern border will likely only get worse. Billions are still flowing into Afghanistan, even as President Biden's State Department blocks an audit. Over two decades, the U.S. spent more than $146 billion on reconstruction projects there. Following the president's uh, surrender and retreat last August, it should come as no surprise to most Americans that the U.S. government is still sending billions of dollars into the country. And where is this money going? Well, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction has been trying to answer those questions, but has thus far been rebuffed by the U.S. State Department, which has refused to comply with requests from auditors. Uh, The head of that uh, organization recently sent a letter to the State Department specifically regarding its offshoot department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, Um, headed by Samantha Power. Well, Sopko, he blasted the agency for failing to respond to more than 20 requests for information over the past eight months. These are the auditors. Billions of dollars have been spent in Afghanistan and billions more continue to be spent, he wrote. Congress and the American taxpayer deserves to know why the Afghan government collapsed after all that assistance, where the money went and how taxpayer money is now being spent in Afghanistan. Well, to make matters worse, the agency is further rebuffed uh, SIGR, that's the initials for the agency, by informing it that the State Department would be choosing its own auditor. Um, Sopko observes, it should go without saying, but neither SIGAR's uh, authorizing statute nor the Inspector General Act of 1978 contain a choose-your-own-auditor provision. President Biden's approval rating sinks to another new low. The latest poll from both Civics and Monument, or, or Monmouth, Uh, find that the president's approval numbers are continuing their downward trend while his disapproval ratings continue to climb. President Joe Biden renews the gun control push following the Highland Park attack. The suspect wore women's clothing during that attack. Authorities in the Chicago suburb where seven people were killed while attending a Fourth of July parade by a gunman armed with a rifle identified six of the victims Tuesday, including a married couple who were parents of a two-year-old child. Both parents were lost. The six victims range in age from 35 to 88 years old. No details were released on the last victim who died at a hospital outside Lake County yesterday. Hunter Biden's laptop had contacts for Google execs and U.S. officials for China policy. He is currently under federal investigation. And the Biden regime admits on camera ushering in a liberal world order is more important than affordable gas. Well, the Kentucky Supreme Court blocked a near total ban on abortion. Well, on this day in history, 1535, Sir Thomas More is executed in England for high treason. One of my all-time favorite movies, A Man for All Seasons. You might want to check it out. 1854, an anti-slavery convention is held at Under the Oaks in Jackson, Michigan. The convention results in the founding of the Republican Party's original platform and the first slate of candidates. 1933, the first Major League Baseball All-Star Game is held in Chicago. 1942, Anne Frank, her parents and sister, enter a secret annex in an Amsterdam building where they were later joined by four other people. They hide from Nazi occupiers for two years before being discovered and arrested. 
1944, an estimated 168 people die in a fire that breaks out during a performance in the main tent of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus in Hartford, Connecticut. 168 people. 1945, President Harry S. Truman signs an executive order establishing the Medal of Freedom. 1957, Althea Gibson becomes the first black tennis player to win a Wimbledon single title as she defeats fellow American Darling Hard. 1957, 16-year-old John Lennon first meets 15-year-old Paul McCartney when Lennon's band, the Quarrymen, Skiffle Group, I'm not even sure what a skiffle group is, but that's what they were, performs a gig at St. Peter's Church in Woolton, Liverpool. 1971, legendary jazz trumpeter and singer Louis Armstrong dies in New York at age 69. 1988, a massive explosion on the Piper Alpha oil drilling platform in the North Sea kills 167 people. 2016, Pokemon Go, the AR-based game, is released. 2017, France announces that it will ban the sale of gas vehicles by 2040. We'll see how they do. 2018, the United States and China impose tariffs on billions of dollars of each other's goods in what Beijing called the biggest trade war in economic history. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, politically correct billionaire financier Jeffrey Epstein, long plagued by allegations of sexual abuse against minors, is arrested and charged with sex trafficking underage girls in New York and Florida. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Luke Cirillo. He is the CEO of First Image uh, and the Portland Area Pregnancy Resource Centers. We're going to talk about the uh, the status, what they do, because there seems to be some misunderstanding and some deliberate misinformation and where they go from here. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Recently, as I was perusing Facebook, not something I do very often, I read a post by a dear friend, a follower of Jesus, who was commenting on the overturn of Roe versus Wade. She shared the sentiment that she was pro-life, but wished the pro-life community was more compassionate and more constructive in how they address the issue. And I was immediately grieved thinking where you get your information from and what you don't know about uh, the ministries that surround this issue. Well, I wanted to talk with Luke Cirillo, who is the CEO of First Image, uh, to talk about what the Pregnancy Resource Centers in the Portland metro area do and around the country, for that matter, uh, and not presume that everybody understands that. There is a barrage of misinformation about the Pregnancy Resource Centers. They've been the subject of uh, violent um, attacks and accusations of late. And so I wanted to begin our conversation today just talking about who the PRCs are, what motivates the work and what the work actually is. And then we'll talk about the future work of PRCs post Roe versus Wade. Luke Cirillo, again, is the CEO of First Image. And Luke, I appreciate so much your willingness to join us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Georgine. Well, I was just mentioning that I read a post from a friend, a pro-life friend who uh, believe the the pro-life community in general was not um, responding in any constructive way to the issue of abortion. And I immediately thought that, you know, uh, it's possible that a good segment of the population, even those who are pro-life or who are professing followers of Jesus, don't understand or know the work of the pregnancy resource centers, at least in our community and across the country. So I wanted to begin our conversation giving you an opportunity to talk about uh, the work uh, to address the accusation that we're all talk and no uh, no real compassion, no constructive response to the needs of women 
who find themselves with unplanned pregnancies? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, a really unfortunate reality is that um, we really haven't had a lot of opportunity to tell the full story of what um, people who hold a pro-life conviction are doing and have been doing for a long time. So for us in our city, um, we started this work in Portland 38 years ago, um, believe it or not, Hmm. in uh, 1984. And over the course of that time, we've had the opportunity to serve over 225,000 women, um, uh, women and their partners, and to serve them with uh, compassionate care that focuses on providing wraparound support that would um, fill the gaps that a woman who might be facing um, an unintended or an unsupported pregnancy um, would be experiencing. And so, you know, we've done that in many different ways over the years. Our work has certainly evolved. Mm -hmm. Um, The core of the work remains the same, which is um, to have in-depth connection with people who are in the midst of uh, an unintended or unsupported pregnancy. So that means that we're having um, conversations at a practical, personal, social, spiritual, emotional level um, with people. So we're frequently spending 45 minutes to an hour with a person who's um, coming into one of our centers, just getting to know them, their situation, what's going on in their life. Um, You know, additionally, um, we're trying to meet the immediate needs they have, which frequently is um, pregnancy testing and confirmation, they want to know that they are pregnant. And so um, we have medical professionals who work on our staff. And this is another kind of significant misconception about pregnancy centers. You know, we work under the um, under medical licensure, under an OBGYN, and we have registered nurses on staff, and we have for well over 20 years um, <clears throat> who are providing yeah, pregnancy testing and confirmation, limited first and second trimester ultrasounds, um, STD testing and treatment, um, uh, nurse consultation. And so we're looking at the full medical history and presence of the people who come into us and we're seeking to get them connected with resources they might need for their medical needs that go beyond what we can provide. But we're also looking to connect them with community resources Um, So social services, we try and stay connected to the network of social support in our city and get women connected to those things that are going to help them get what they need. That might be housing, economic support, getting onto um, our state insurance plan or things things of of that nature. And then we try and stay connected as long as we can. So um, we try and uh, we explicitly try and provide support up through baby's second birthday. So we're we're connected in the kind of that initial phase. That's where a lot of our work is, um, is providing support where support is most needed, which is frequently right at the beginning. But we're also trying to provide resources throughout pregnancy. So that's, um, you know, that's getting women connected to prenatal care that they might need to, um, uh, yeah, practical social resources, as I mentioned, but then also to get closer to birth, um, material supplies, baby clothes, um, you know, uh, baby supplies, diapers, car seats, um, and then parenting classes. And so there's, you know, a lot of things along the way. And so it is, it is unfortunate that I think the work 
of the pro-life movement is frequently reduced to um, to one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, about 3,000 pregnancy centers in the country. Um, <clears throat> there are over 10,000 licensed medical professionals that are working in pregnancy centers across the country. Um, I think the estimate is that the value of the services is something like $266 million a year because all our services that we provide are totally free. Um, so uh, it's been a longstanding, deep kind of movement um, in our culture to provide support in this way um, that, uh, yeah, I think it's important that we are able to talk about that. It's Absolutely. A, Absolutely. Let me ask you a question about two other accusations. And one is if a woman comes to you and she makes the decision, I'm going to have an abortion after having the pregnancy test after how is she treated? And the other question is a woman who has had an abortion and regrets that abortion. How do you respond to her? Well, we treat everyone that comes into one of our centers in the same way, um, regardless of the decision that we make. We reject any practices that are manipulative or coercive or based in shame or mis- misinformation, any attempt to coerce a woman into a particular decision. We believe that just providing real, genuine, deep support um, <clears throat> does does the work itself. Uh, and so, yeah, sometimes... Um, women will come and and make a decision to have an abortion after coming to us. And we seek to maintain the relationship for just like we would with anybody else. So we're still looking to provide whatever resources or support that person is going to be needing um, after that decision, just as we would before if they made a different decision. Um, Yeah. I think that that covers it. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you addressing those Uh, issues, because as I mentioned, there is a great deal of misunderstanding. Some of that is well orchestrated to create an impression that is known to be false. But for those who want to know, you know, what the the pro-life movement in this area is doing, I appreciate your uh, filling in the blanks. I receive your e-newsletter on a regular basis. And for anyone who doesn't, I would encourage you to subscribe. I so appreciate uh, your eloquence and and helping us to put into perspective some of the things we've been witnessing over the last uh, several weeks. Uh, one of the points that you make in the latest version is the fact that the work to protect the lives of unborn or preborn children is far from over, but that the ultimate goal was never just to overturn Roe versus Wade. Overturning Roe, you write, makes more um, just laws possible, but it doesn't in itself cause our culture to value life. And I think for a lot of uh, pro-lifers, the question is, where do we go from here? What's the next focus of the ministry? Now, Oregon is unique in that there'll be virtually no change in terms of the laws and access to abortion here and other parts of the country. Uh, there are some dramatic changes, but talk about the future of the pregnancy resource centers here in our communities um, moving forward post row. I think uh, followers of Jesus have a history of providing um, deep and rich support to our neighbors. And that's birthed out of a, a love for our neighbor and a love for God. And so Um, I think that's the work we continue to do. I think one of the unfortunate um, realities in our current political moment is that everything is quite nationally oriented. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's an opportunity here for a refocus on our neighbors, Um, the people who are in our communities, who are connected to us through our churches or through the schools that um, our children go to or any of the other places that we exist um, around here. And so 
to um, to, uh, to 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 come close to the people who um, need support the most, and to seek to be a life-giving presence um, in real and tangible ways. I think that's the way the way forward. I think that's a witness. Um, an effective witness to the work of Jesus in the world when we do that out of a belief that our neighbors are created in the image of God and worthy of dignity. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that's the work going forward um, is that on the ground work in our, in our local communities. We're talking with Luke Cirillo. He is the CEO of First Image and the Pregnancy Resource Centers of the Portland metro area. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Luke Cirillo. He is the executive director, the CEO, if you will, of First Image in the Pregnancy Resource Centers of the Portland metro area. The uh, PRCs and pro-life work in general has been the focus of a significant amount of vitriol across the country, and the Portland metro area has been no exception. Neither has uh, Southwest Washington. Most recently, your headquarters... Um, was targeted by um, violent protesters. Can you uh, bring us up to date on what has happened at Pregnancy Resource Centers and at the First Image office? Absolutely. So we've actually had four incidents at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the first was at our Southeast Center location where all the windows were broken out and there was some graffiti. The second was the firebombing at the Gresham Center, which we now know has totally destroyed the inside of that building, caused about $250,000 oh. worth of damage. Um, it'll take about six to nine months for us to to rebuild there. Um, we're excited about um, what what it will be on the other side, but it's it's definitely disturbing and upsetting to have our services disrupted this way. Um, and then most recently, well, I guess it wasn't most recently because we did have another incident that happened just two nights ago, um, graffiti on the windows at the same same location where we just replaced all the windows. But um, this. Uh, the Monday after the Roe decision, um, a group of uh, Antifa protesters gathered at our headquarters where we also share offices with a coffee shop um, and uh, and a church. And so they hit this building pretty heavily, broke out all the windows on the church side. We had had ours boarded up in time because we actually were uh, given advance notice that this was going to happen. Um, the building was heavily tagged uh, with some pretty hateful messages, but we were honestly just so encouraged by the response of our community here. I mean, the graffiti was covered up by the next morning. The news cameras showed up um, to see what had happened, and there was nothing to see by the time they got here. So we actually are quite thankful for that um, and encouraged by uh, yeah, the way that the people who are uh, actually around us physically and see what we do on a day-to-day basis um, just don't understand the hate that's being directed at us. And so that's um, that's kind of where we're at. Uh, yeah. Our team, our team is um, maybe a little weary uh, from the kind of onslaught, constant, you know, weekly things that have been going on. But also, is just incredibly resilient. I'm just blown away by the courage of the folks who are doing this work. Absolutely. You make the point in your newsletter that the graffiti that was written on the building was hateful, but it was also childish and sad. And you write that you were reminded um, in a new way that if our battle is not against flesh and blood, that means those who hate us are held captive to a self-destructive deception. 
And putting that into perspective, and then you uh, paraphrase, uh, paraphrase an old axiom, hate is like drinking poison, believing it will kill somebody else. And Jesus calls us to respond in a different way. I mean, obviously, you haven't confronted, you haven't been in close proximity to the people who are responsible for this. But how you respond in your own heart and mind toward those who are um, the uh, the perpetrators of this violence matters. How are you thinking through the people who are responsible for the damage that's been caused? Yeah, well, I'm very committed to the idea that... Um that, uh, you know, for God so loved the world and that there's um, no qualification on that. So in terms, I think you're right, in terms of our own hearts, there's a lot of temptations that come in a moment like this. And that temptation is actually to do the thing that we really, um, as people who hold a pro-life conviction, um, want not to do, which is to dehumanize other people. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so we want to make sure that we are keeping our hearts soft and open and praying for um, the repentance and the redemption of those who are, are captive to a hateful ideology um, and not to enter into that same, that warfare in the same spirit. Um, Cause there really is, there really is a pull to, to, to be drawn into that kind of battle that has a spirit that I think is counter to the work that Jesus is doing in the world. And so absolutely, um, that's, that's where we're at. Yeah. The flesh cries out retaliation, you know, respond in kind, yeah. return evil for evil. But again, referring to your newsletter, you, you remind us that Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who, perse- who persecute us. We love our enemies because our ultimate enemy is also destroying them. He seeks to kill even those he enlists. So putting things into perspective and really setting an example for the broader uh, pro-life community will help all of us to remember where our loyalty ultimately lies, who empowers us to love those who um, persecute. Uh, and that will give us the the capacity to respond in a way that's honoring to him. And as you pointed out, doesn't dehumanize those who are perpetrating the, the violence and the assault on this ministry. I know one of the challenges for you is um, the resource to replace, to restore, to clean up all of those things necessary in order for the offices that have been um, uh, targeted. How has uh, the general community responded in terms of the uh, supporting the work moving forward? Honestly, it's been unbelievably generous. So we're, we're just, we're blown away. People from all over the country um, sending gifts, notes of encouragement. So yeah, we're incredibly encouraged. Actually right now, we, for the moment, have paused um, taking gifts towards the, re- the restoration of the Gresham Center because um, we're still kind of sorting out all the, the costs, the insurance, all of that. And we've just had so many people who've been so generous. And so for the moment, we're saying um, uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you for all that giving. And we, we will be revisiting it in a couple months as we get a little closer and see kind of what things are really looking like. Um, so right now, one of our biggest needs is, is security. Um, we have had to invest in security in a way that we really haven't ever done before. So for those folks who are wanting to give in a pretty tangible way, um, that's something that we're inviting people to support. I think when you and I talked before, we also encouraged our listeners to pray for the safety and overall well-being of your staff, volunteers, and and clients. Uh, the work continues under challenging circumstances and it has to be jarring and uh, frightening to work in an environment where you don't know what's going to happen next. So I would encourage all of our listeners to remember you and uh, again, the volunteer staff and clients in prayer 
um, as you move uh, forward. In terms of the the unlawful acts that have been committed against the facilities, uh, do you do you feel like you're being taken seriously and our investigations moving forward as they ought? Absolutely. That's been one of the really encouraging pieces of all of this. Um, so before the incident happened here at our headquarters, the um, crime investigator for the Portland police um, reached out to us and to our centers to let us know they're monitoring online chatter. And so they are um, they're they're. Um, yeah, they're keeping tabs on what's going on. They did a pretty um, thorough forensic investigation after what happened here at the center because there's a lot of materials left behind. Um, unfortunately, the capacity to uh, stop things as they're happening is pretty limited in the city of Portland right now. So mm-hmm. that's the biggest um, hang up in being able to make uh, arrests in these um, in these acts. Um, but the FBI and the police have both um, been very consistent in their communication and um, they're clearly investigating, um, you know, taking seriously the investigation. Well, we certainly appreciate that. It sounds like it's not highly likely that they will be able to identify specific perpetrators, but they are in the process of at least attempting to make that identification. That's right. And I think it seems like they're focused on the networks of people. Mm-hmm who are coordinating to perpetrate these particular acts. Um, So, yeah, we're hoping that they're able to, yeah, um, find some of the specific perpetrators, but you're you're right. It seems like it's not highly likely at this point. The Pregnancy Resource Centers um, started out as the CPCs, then the Pregnancy Resource Centers, now First Image, has been around for 38 years, and I've witnessed much of that, uh, that period of time, and there have been some significant leadership that's come out of the Portland metro area. You are filling very big shoes that's, that span that period of time. How can we pray for you? You've begun your role as executive director, as the CEO, under, uh, under very uh, challenging circumstances. You are certainly um, up for the, the challenge, but how can we pray for you specifically as you continue to lead and seek wisdom in moving forward? Yeah, I'm just trying to stay um, at peace in Jesus. <laughs> So I appreciate prayers um, along those lines. Uh, there's a lot of details, kind of a lot of frenetic energy around things like this. And so it can be easy to get pulled into that and to um, not take the time that I really need to be um, listening and, uh, you know, intimate in a way with Jesus that that kind of keeps my, my heart centered in the right place. So prayers in that respect are greatly appreciated. Also just for my family is Mm -hmm. um, there's focus on us. I've been called out online in various ways. And, um, and so, you know, just protection, I think um, as uh, a public person in all this, um, it's true for a lot of our staff too, but um, yeah, that's some, that's an area that we could use. use And then just, and then just perseverance. Yeah. Perseverance. Well, we are grateful that you have assumed the leadership, that you are the one chosen to carry uh, the movement forward at this time and to continue to serve and minister and love on the women and uh, their children and many men who come uh, to the ministry. And we'll certainly keep you in prayer. Luke Cirillo, thank you so much for talking with us and thank you for your leadership. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. Bye bye. Again, Luke is the CEO of First Image. Uh, They oversee the Pregnancy Resource Centers of the Portland metro area. You can remember those 
ministries in um, Pathways and Options 360 in Southwest Washington and across the country as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I read with interest uh, an account of an interview that took place on Fox News recently in which a Chinese immigrant who witnessed Mao Zedong's cultural revolution as a child and then a young adult warned against the indoctrination of children in K-12 through schools with neo-Marxist ideologies such as critical race theory and the New York Times 1619 Project. In an interview with Fox Digital, Lily Tang Williams, who's currently running as a Republican candidate for Congress in New Hampshire's 2nd District, discussed the lessons she learned as a witness to communist brutality and shared a warning to Americans on the importance of fighting for liberty. She believed, or rather, Mao believed that young people's minds mind is a blank piece of paper. You can draw the most beautiful pictures or whatever he wants to draw or whatever he wants them to believe. Those are the warning signs. That's why you, you know, we have to absolutely support the parental rights and support school choice, she said. Parents started to wake up to say what's going on in our schools, which is a good thing. I'm still positive and I'm still optimistic about our country, end quote. Well, Tang Williams was born in China's western a Sichuan province in the cusp of Mao's deadly terror campaign, the Cultural Revolution. She currently lives in fear that the a communist country she meticulously planned to escape from is unfurling before her eyes here at home in the U.S. The Chinese Cultural Revolution was a political purge and a persecution of millions of suspected anti-revolutionaries orchestrated by Mao, who was the chairman of the People's Republic of China from 49 to 76. The violent movement vehemently opposed the four olds, old ideas, old culture, old customs and old habits, and featured the destruction of cultural artifacts. Tang Williams drew a parallel between the Chinese revolution that was based on class and what she believed is a neo-Marxist cultural revolution that's based on identity groups molded together into a coalition on an oppressive and oppression matrix. And she having lived through it. Identity politics is the hallmark of Maoism, Tang Williams said. Critical race theory and the New York Times 1619 project, which hold that America is systematically racist, are all part of this revolution, the New Hampshire congressional candidate said. Mao used standard Marxist terms like oppressor versus oppressed, she said. He actually divided all Chinese citizens because we are of the same race and have the same skin color into five black classes versus the five red classes. The five black categories of oppressors included right-wingers, rich farmers, landlords, counter-revolutionaries, and bad influencers. On the other side were the red categories, who were the poor, working-class, revolutionary guards, and active members of the Chinese Communist Party. Children were one of the most effective tools Mao exploited to fuel his revolution. They became indoctrinated to a point where they betrayed their parents to the communist state in order to move upwards in class, she said. Tragedy is where young people were brainwashed to say, I want to be red class. I'm going to denounce my family and to turn them over to the red guards, to the authorities, change last name, draw the line between me and my parents. Her family witnessed people being tortured by the Red Guards, a student-led paramilitary social movement orchestrated by Mao. The fact that parents are being kept in the dark and blocked from influencing their children's learning is a power struggle, she recalls, from China. The left wants to destroy nuclear families, Tang Williams said. That's why uh, they want to keep their kids close to the government and get them to feel like my parents don't understand me. Then they take the children away from their parents so they can rely on the state. 
typical communist tactics. And these are quotes. The first crack in the indoctrination Tang Williams vehemently believed in was forged when Mao died at age 82 after several heart attacks. All her life, she had been told Chairman Mao was a god. How could a god die, she asked. It took 20 years over the course of her journey in America to rid herself of all the communist propaganda. Her family members who live in China are still lost to the indoctrination, she said, and continue to ask her to observe a moment of silence for Mao's December 26th birthday. They have no idea how many people he starved to death because of his policies. He's a sociopath, a mass killer, but people don't know. They're still missing him, she said. I call that like an an enslaved people with their consent being... Uh, Because they lack access to truth and have a lack of choices. And so it's all about controlling the media and propaganda, end quote. Mao's great leap forward and economic policy led to the deaths of up to 45 million people. Adhering to communist ideals, the state seized control of production. Private farmland was confiscated and food distribution was placed under the purview of the government. As a result, the Chinese people died from starvation, forced labor, suicide and torture. A law professor at George Mason University, Ilya Soman, wrote the Washington in the Washington Post that Mao was probably responsible for the largest uh, mass murder of all time. He postulated that the reason the atrocity is not spoken about in academia is the tendency among elites to downplay crimes committed by communist regimes. Soman adds that Western in, uh, intellectuals are reluctant to fully accept what an evil, a great evil it was because they are fearful, perhaps, that other left-wing causes might be tainted by association. Well, Tang Williams said that one of the things she hopes to do on the House floor if she wins is debate Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on socialism. When millennials talk about concepts like democratic socialism, we're not talking about these kinds of red square boogeymen, AOC said in an interview. We're talking about countries and systems that are already that already exist, that have already been proven to be successful in the modern world, end quote. I'm so ready to debate her from the U.S. Congress floor. How many people are the progressives willing to see die of starvation, be murdered and killed in order to have an accurate conclusion about socialism, she went on to say. Similarly, the K-12 through education system is not teaching American schoolchildren the full facts about what happened under the communist dictatorship at the peril of a repeat of the human tragedy that happened throughout all of the 100 years of communism, the congressional candidate says. I hope parents start to exercise parental rights and control in America. Our children belong to parents. They do not belong to government. So parents uh, absolutely have decisions about what they're taught in school and what age-appropriate curriculum curriculum rather they should be allowed. Free speech, the Second Amendment, and parental rights, everything is under attack, she said. It's upside down. Well, that's part of the central, uh, the cultural revolution. Redefine social norms, change your birth, control the narratives, and purge their political enemies. These are very similar tactics I've seen before in China. Well, we are out of time. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk with Lina Abu-Jamara, author of Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. The book is published by Moody. She'll be my guest in the first hour of tomorrow's program. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.